This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 24 The Golden Arm. Here was once a man who travelled the land all over in search of a wife. He saw young and old, rich and poor, pretty and plain, and could not meet with one to his mind. At last he found a woman, young, fair and rich, who possessed a right arm of solid gold. He married her at once, and thought no man so fortunate as he was. They lived happily together, but, though he wished people to think otherwise, he was fonder of the golden arm than of all his wife's gifts besides. At last she died. The husband put on the blackest black, and pulled the longest face at the funeral. But for all that he got up in the middle of the night, dug up the body, and cut off the golden arm. He hurried home to hide his treasure, and thought no one would know. The following night he put the golden arm under his pillow, and was just falling asleep, when the ghost of his dead wife glided into the room. Stalking up to the bedside, it drew the curtain and looked at him reproachfully. Pretending not to be afraid, he spoke to the ghost and said, "'What hast thou done with thy cheeks so red?' "'All withered and wasted away,' replied the ghost in a hollow tone. "'What hast thou done with thy red rosy lips?' "'All withered and wasted away.' "'What hast thou done with thy golden hair?' "'All withered and wasted away.' "'What hast thou done with thy golden arm?' "'Thou hast it!' End of chapter 24, The Golden Arm This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 25, The History of Tom Thumb. In the days of the great Prince Arthur, there lived a mighty magician called Merlin, the most learned and skilful enchanter the world has ever seen. This famous magician, who could take any form he pleased, was travelling about as a poor beggar, and being very tired, he stopped at the cottage of a ploughman to rest himself, and asked for some food. The countryman bade him welcome, and his wife, who was a very good-hearted woman, soon brought him some milk in a wooden bowl, and some coarse brown bread on a platter. Merlin was much pleased with the kindness of the ploughman and his wife, but he could not help noticing that though everything was neat and comfortable in the cottage, they seemed both to be very unhappy. He therefore asked them why they were so melancholy, and learned that they were miserable because they had no children. The poor woman said with tears in her eyes, I should be the happiest creature in the world if I had a son. Although he was no bigger than my husband's thumb, I would be satisfied. Merlin was so much amused with the idea of a boy no bigger than a man's thumb, that he determined to grant the poor woman's wish. Accordingly, in a short time after, the ploughman's wife had a son, who, wonderful to relate, was not a bit bigger than his father's thumb. The queen of the fairies, wishing to see the little fellow, came in at the window while the mother was sitting up in the bed admiring him. The queen kissed the child, and, 
giving it the name of Tom Thumb, sent for some of the fairies, who dressed her little godson according to her orders. An oak-leaf hat he had for his crown, his shirt of web by spiders spun, with jacket wove of thistles down, his trousers were of feathers done, his stockings of apple rind they tie, with eyelash from his mother's eye, his shoes were made of mouse's skin, tanned with the downy hair within. Tom never grew any larger than his father's thumb, which was only of ordinary size, but as he got older he became very cunning and full of tricks. When he was old enough to play with the boys and had lost all his own cherry stones, he used to creep into the bags of his playfellows, fill his pockets, and, getting out without their noticing him, would again join in the game. One day, however, as he was coming out of a bag of cherry stones where he had been stealing as usual, the boy to whom it belonged chanced to see him. "'Aha! my little Tommy,' said the boy, "'so I have caught you stealing my cherry stones at last, "'and you shall be rewarded for your thievish tricks.' "'On saying this, he drew the string tight round his neck "'and gave the bag such a hearty shake "'that poor little Tom's legs, thighs, and body were sadly bruised. "'He roared out with pain and begged to be let out, "'promising never to steal again.' A short time afterwards, his mother was making a batter pudding, and Tom, being very anxious to see how it was made, climbed up to the edge of the bowl, but his foot slipped, and he plumped over head and ears into the batter, without his mother noticing him, who stirred him into the pudding bag, and put him in the pot to boil. The batter filled Tom's mouth and prevented him from crying, but on feeling the hot water, he kicked and struggled so much in the pot that his mother thought that the pudding was bewitched, and pulling it out of the pot, she threw it outside the door. A poor tinker who was passing by lifted up the pudding, and putting it into his budget, he then walked off. As Tom had now got his mouth cleared of the batter, he then began to cry aloud, which so frightened the tinker that he flung down the pudding and ran away. The pudding being broke to pieces by the fall, Tom crept out, covered all over with the batter, and walked home. His mother, who was very sorry to see her darling in such a woeful state, put him into a teacup, and soon washed off the batter, after which she kissed him and laid him in bed. Soon after the adventure of the pudding, Tom's mother went to milk her cow in the meadow, and she took him along with her. As the wind was very high, for fear of being blown away, she tied him to a thistle with a piece of fine thread. The cow soon observed Tom's oak-leaf hat, and liking the appearance of it, took poor Tom and the thistle at one mouthful. While the cow was chewing the thistle, Tom was afraid of her great teeth, which threatened to crush him in pieces, and he roared out as loud as he could, "'Mother! Mother!' "'Where are you, Tommy, my dear Tommy?' said his mother. "'Here, mother,' replied he, "'in the red cow's mouth!' His mother began to cry and wring her hands. But the cow, surprised at the odd noise in her throat, opened her mouth and let Tom drop out. Fortunately, his mother caught him in her apron as he was falling to the ground, or he would have been dreadfully hurt. She then put Tom in her bosom and ran home with him. Tom's father made him a whip of a barley straw to drive the cattle with, and having one day gone into the fields, he slipped a foot and rolled into the furrow. A raven which was flying over picked him up, and flew with him over the sea, and there dropped him. 
A large fish swallowed Tom the moment he fell into the sea, which was soon after caught and brought for the table of King Arthur. When they opened the fish in order to cook it, everyone was astonished at finding such a little boy, and Tom was quite delighted at being free again. They carried him to the king who made Tom his dwarf, and he soon grew a great favourite at court, for by his tricks and gambles he not only amused the king and queen, but also all the knights of the round table. It is said that when the king rode out on horseback, he often took Tom along with him, and if a shower came on, he used to creep into his majesty's waistcoat pocket, where he slept till the rain was over. King Arthur one day asked Tom about his parents, wishing to know if they were as small as he was, and whether they were well off. Tom told the king that his father and mother were as tall as anybody about the court, but in rather poor circumstances. On hearing this, the king carried Tom to his treasury, the place where he kept all his money, and told him to take as much money as he could carry home to his parents, which made the poor little fellow caper with joy. Tom went immediately to procure a purse, which was made of a water-bubble, and then returned to the treasury, where he received a silver three-penny piece to put into it. Our little hero had some difficulty in lifting the burden upon his back, but he at last succeeded in getting it placed to his mind, and set forward on his journey. However, without meeting with any accident, and after resting himself more than a hundred times by the way, in two days and two nights he reached his father's house in safety. Tom had travelled forty-eight hours with a huge silver piece on his back, and was almost tired to death when his mother ran out to meet him, and carried him into the house. But he soon returned to court. As Tom's clothes had suffered much in the batter pudding and the inside of the fish, his majesty ordered him a new suit of clothes, and to be mounted as a knight on a mouse. Of butterfly's wings his shirt was made, his boots of chicken's hides, and by a nimble fairy blade, well learned in the tailoring trade, his clothing was supplied. A needle dangled by his side, a dapper mouse he used to ride, thus strutted Tom in stately pride. It was certainly very diverting to see Tom in this dress, and mounted on the mouse, as he rode out a-hunting with the king and nobility, who were all ready to expire with laughter at Tom and his fine prancing charger. The king was so charmed with his address that he ordered a little chair to be made, in order that Tom might sit upon his table, and also a palace of gold a span high, with a door an inch wide, to live in. He also gave him a coach drawn by six small mice. The queen was so enraged at the honours conferred on Sir Thomas that she resolved to ruin him, and told the king that the little knight had been saucy to her. The king sent for Tom in great haste, but being fully aware of the danger of royal anger, he crept into an empty snail-shell, where he lay for a long time, until he was almost starved with hunger. But at last he ventured to peep out, and seeing a fine large butterfly on the ground, near the place of his concealment, he got close to it, and jumping astride on it, was carried up into the air. The butterfly flew with him from tree to tree, and from field to field, and at last returned to the court, where the king and nobility all strove to catch him. But at last poor Tom fell from his seat into a watering-pot, in which he was almost drowned. 
When the queen saw him, she was in a rage, and said he should be beheaded, and he was again put into a mousetrap until the time of his execution. However, a cat, observing something alive in the trap, patted it about till the wires broke, and set Thomas at liberty. The king received Tom again into favour, which he did not live to enjoy, for a large spider one day attacked him, and although he drew his sword and fought well, yet the spider's poisonous breath at last overcame him. He fell dead on the ground where he stood, and the spider sucked every drop of his blood. King Arthur and his whole court were so sorry at the loss of their little favourite that they went into mourning and raised a fine white marble monument over his grave with the following epitaph. Here lies Tom Thumb, King Arthur's knight, who died by a spider's cruel bite. He was well known in Arthur's court, where he afforded gallant sport. He rode at tilt and tournament, and on a mouse a hunting went. Alive he filled the court with mirth, his death to sorrow soon gave birth. Wipe, wipe your eyes and shake your head, and cry, alas, Tom Thumb is dead. End of chapter 25 The History of Tom Thumb This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 26. Mr. Fox. Lady Mary was young, and Lady Mary was fair. She had two brothers, and more lovers than she could count. But of them all, the bravest and most gallant was a Mr. Fox, whom she met when she was down at her father's country house. No one knew who Mr. Fox was, but he was certainly brave, and surely rich, and of all her lovers, Lady Mary cared for him alone. At last it was agreed upon between them that they should be married. Lady Mary asked Mr. Fox where they should live, and he described to her his castle and where it was but strange to say did not ask her or her brothers to come and see it. So one day, near the wedding day, when her brothers were out, and Mr. Fox was away for a day or two on business, as he said, Lady Mary set out for Mr. Fox's castle. And after many searchings, she came at last to it, and a fine, strong house it was, with high walls and a deep moat. And when she came up to the gateway, she saw written on it, Be bold, be bold. But as the gate was open, she went through it, and found no one there. So she went up to the doorway, and over it she found written, Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. Still she went on, till she came into the hall, and went up the broad stairs, till she came to a door in the gallery, over which was written, Be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest that your heart's blood should run cold. But Lady Mary was a brave one, she was, and she opened the door, and what do you think she saw? Why, bodies and skeletons of beautiful young ladies, all stained with blood. So Lady Mary thought it was high time to get out of that horrid place, and she closed the door, went through the gallery, and was just going down the stairs and out of the hall, when who should she see through the window but Mr. Fox dragging a beautiful young lady along from the gateway to the door. 
Lady Mary rushed downstairs and hid herself behind a cask, just in time as Mr. Fox came in with the poor young lady who seemed to have fainted. Just as he got near Lady Mary, Mr. Fox saw a diamond ring glittering on the finger of the young lady he was dragging, and he tried to pull it off. But it was tightly fixed and would not come off. So Mr. Fox cursed and swore, and drew his sword and raised it, and brought it down upon the hand of the poor lady. The sword cut off the hand which jumped up into the air, and fell of all places in the world into Lady Mary's lap. Mr. Fox looked about a bit, but did not think of looking behind the cask. So at last he went on dragging the young lady up the stairs into the bloody chamber. As soon as she heard him pass through the gallery, Lady Mary crept out of the door, down through the gateway, and ran home as fast as she could. Now it happened that the very next day the marriage contract of Lady Mary and Mr. Fox was to be signed, and there was a splendid breakfast before that. And when Mr. Fox was seated at table opposite Lady Mary, he looked at her. "'How pale you are this morning, my dear.' "'Yes,' said she. "'I had a bad night's rest last night. I had horrible dreams.' "'Dreams go by contraries,' said Mr. Fox. "'But tell us your dream.' and your sweet voice will make the time pass till the happy hour comes. I dreamed, said Lady Mary, that I went yestermorn to your castle, and I found it in the woods with high walls and a deep moat, and over the gateway was written, Be bold, be bold. But it is not so, nor it was not so, said Mr. Fox. And when I came to the doorway, over it was written, Be bold, be bold but not too bold. It is not so, nor it was not so, said Mr. Fox. And then I went upstairs, and came to a gallery, at the end of which was a door, on which was written, Be bold, be bold, but not too bold, lest that your heart's blood should run cold. It is not so, nor it was not so, said Mr. Fox. And then, and then I opened the door, and the room was filled with bodies and skeletons of poor dead women, all stained with their blood. It is not so, nor it was not so, and God forbid it should be so, said Mr. Fox. I then dreamed that I rushed down the gallery, and just as I was going down the stairs, I saw you, Mr. Fox, coming up to the hall door, dragging after you a poor young lady, rich and beautiful. It is not so, nor it was not so, and God forbid it should be so, said Mr. Fox. I rushed downstairs just in time to hide myself behind a cask, when you, Mr. Fox, came in dragging the young lady by the arm, and as you passed me, Mr. Fox, I thought I saw you try and get off her diamond ring, and when you could not, Mr. Fox, it seemed to me in my dream that you out with your sword and hacked off the poor lady's hand to get the ring. It is not so, nor it was not so, and God forbid it should be so, said Mr. Fox, and was going to say something else as he rose from his seat when Lady Mary cried out, But it is so, and it was so, here's hand and ring I have to show, and pulled out the lady's hand from her dress and pointed it straight at Mr. Fox. 
At once her brothers and her friends drew their swords and cut Mr. Fox into a thousand pieces. End of chapter 26 Mr. Fox This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 27. Lazy Jack. Once upon a time there was a boy whose name was Jack, and he lived with his mother on a common. They were very poor, and the old woman got her living by spinning. But Jack was so lazy that he would do nothing but bask in the sun in the hot weather, and sit by the corner of the hearth in the winter time. So they called him Lazy Jack. His mother could not get him to do anything for her, and at last told him one Monday that if he did not begin to work for his porridge, she would turn him out to get his living as he could. This roused Jack, and he went out and hired himself for the next day to a neighbouring farmer for a penny. But as he was coming home, never having had any money before, he lost it in passing over a brook. "'You stupid boy!' said his mother. "'You should have put it in your pocket.' "'I'll do so another time,' replied Jack. On Wednesday, Jack went out again and hired himself to a cowkeeper, who gave him a jar of milk for his day's work. Jack took the jar and put it into the large pocket of his jacket, spilling it all long before he got home. "'Dear me,' said the old woman, "'you should have carried it on your head.' "'I'll do so another time,' said Jack. So on Thursday... Jack hired himself again to a farmer, who agreed to give him a cream cheese for his services. In the evening, Jack took the cheese and went home with it on his head. By the time he got home, the cheese was all spoilt, part of it being lost, and part matted with his hair. "'You stupid lout!' said his mother. "'You should have carried it very carefully in your hands.' "'I'll do so another time,' replied Jack. On Friday... Lazy Jack again went out and hired himself to a baker who would give him nothing for his work but a large tomcat. Jack took the cat and began carrying it very carefully in his hands, but in a short time Pussy scratched him so much that he was compelled to let it go. When he got home his mother said to him, "'You silly fellow! You should have tied it with a string and dragged it along after you!' "'I'll do so another time,' said Jack. So on Saturday, Jack hired himself to a butcher, who rewarded him by the handsome present of a shoulder of mutton. Jack took the mutton, tied it to a string, and trailed it along after him in the dirt, so that by the time he had got home, the meat was completely spoiled. His mother was this time quite out of patience with him, for the next day was Sunday, and she was obliged to make do with cabbage for her dinner. "'You ninny-hammer,' said she to her son, you should have carried it on your shoulder. I'll do so another time, replied Jack. On the next Monday, Lazy Jack went once more and hired himself to a cattle keeper who gave him a donkey for his trouble. Jack found it hard to hoist the donkey on his shoulders, but at last he did it and began walking slowly home with his prize. Now it happened that in the course of his journey there lived a rich man with his only daughter, a beautiful girl, but deaf and dumb. 
Now she had never laughed in her life, and the doctors said she would never speak till somebody made her laugh. This young lady happened to be looking out of the window when Jack was passing with the donkey on his shoulders, with the legs sticking up in the air, and the sight was so comical and strange that she burst out into a great fit of laughter and immediately recovered her speech and hearing. Her father was overjoyed and fulfilled his promise by marrying her to Lazy Jack, who was thus made a rich gentleman. They lived in a large house, and Jack's mother lived with them in great happiness until she died. End of chapter 27 Lazy Jack This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 28. Johnny Cake. Once upon a time there was an old man and an old woman and a little boy. One morning the old woman made a Johnny Cake and put it in the oven to bake. You watch the Johnny Cake while your father and I go out to work in the garden. So the old man and the old woman went out and began to hoe potatoes and left the little boy to tend the oven. But he didn't watch it all the time. And all of a sudden he heard a noise and he looked up and the oven door popped open and out of the oven jumped Johnny Cake and went rolling along end over end towards the open door of the house. The little boy ran to shut the door but Johnny Cake was too quick for him and rolled through the door, down the steps and out into the road long before the little boy could catch him. The little boy ran after him as fast as he could clip it, crying out to his father and mother, who heard the uproar and threw down their hose and gave chase too. But Johnny Cake outran all three a long way and was soon out of sight while they had to sit down, all out of breath, on a bank to rest. On went Johnny Cake, and by and by he came to two well-diggers who looked up from their work and called out, "'Where are you going, Johnny Cake?' he said. "'I've outrun an old man, an old woman, and a little boy, and I can outrun you too!' "'You can, can ye? We'll see about that,' said they. And they threw down their picks and ran after him, but couldn't catch up with him, and soon they had to sit down by the roadside to rest." On ran Johnny Cake, and by and by he came to two ditch-diggers who were digging a ditch. "'Where are you going, Johnny Cake?' said they. He said, "'I've outrun an old man and an old woman and a little boy and two well-diggers, and I can outrun you too!' "'You can, can you? We'll see about that,' said they. And they threw down their spades and ran after him too. But Johnny Cake soon outstripped them also and seeing they could never catch him, they gave up the chase and sat down to rest. On went Johnny Cake, and by and by he came to a bear. The bear said, "'Where are you going, Johnny Cake?' He said, "'I've outrun an old man, and an old woman, and a little boy, and two well-diggers, and two ditch-diggers, and I can outrun you too!' "'You can, can ye?' growled the bear. "'We'll see about that.' and trotted as fast as his legs could carry him after Johnny Cake, who never stopped to look behind him. Before long the bear was left so far behind 
that he saw he might as well give up the hunt first as last, so he stretched himself out by the roadside to rest. On went Johnny Cake, and by and by he came to a wolf. The wolf said, "'Where are ye going, Johnny Cake?' He said, "'I've outrun an old man and an old woman and a little boy and two well-diggers and two ditch-diggers and a bear, and I can outrun you too!' "'Ye can, can ye?' snarled the wolf. "'We'll see about that!' And he set into a gallop after Johnny Cake, who went on and on so fast that the wolf, too, saw there was no hope of overtaking him, and he, too, lay down to rest. On went Johnny Cake, and by and by he came to a fox that lay quietly in a corner of the fence. The fox called out in a sharp voice, but without getting up, "'Where are ye going, Johnny Cake?' He said, "'I've outrun an old man and an old woman and a little boy and two well-diggers and two ditch-diggers, a bear and a wolf, and I can outrun you too!' The fox said, "'Can't quite hear you, Johnny Cake. Won't you come a little closer?' Turning his head a little to one side. Johnny Cake stopped his race for the first time and went a little closer and called out in a very loud voice, "'I've outrun an old man and an old woman and a little boy and two well-diggers and two ditch-diggers and a bear and a wolf, and I can outrun you too!' "'Can't quite hear you. Won't you come a little closer?' said the fox in a feeble voice, as he stretched out his neck towards Johnny Cake and put one paw behind his ear. Johnny Cake came up close, and leaning towards the fox screamed out, I've outrun an old man and an old woman and a little boy and two well-diggers and two ditch-diggers and a bear and a wolf and I can outrun you too. You can, can you? yelped the fox, and he snapped up the Johnny Cake in his sharp teeth in the twinkling of an eye. End of chapter 28 Johnny Cake This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 29 Earl Mar's Daughter. One fine summer's day, Earl Mar's daughter went into the castle garden, dancing and tripping along, and as she played and sported, she would stop from time to time to listen to the music of the birds. After a while, as she sat under the shade of a green oak tree, she looked up and spied a sprightly dove sitting high up on one of its branches. She looked up and said, "'Coo, my dove, my dear, come down to me and I will give you a golden cage. I'll take you home and pet you well, as well as any bird of them all.' Scarcely had she said these words, when the dove flew down from the branch and settled on her shoulder, nestling up against her neck while she smoothed its feathers. Then she took it home to her own room. The day was done and the night came on, and Earl Mar's daughter was thinking of going to sleep when, turning round, she found at her side a handsome young man. She was startled, for the door had been locked for hours. But she was a brave girl and said, "'What are you doing here, young man?' "'to come and startle me so. "'The door was barred these hours ago. 
However did you come here? Hush, hush, the young man whispered. I was that cooing dove that you coaxed from off the tree. But who are you then, she said quite low, and how came you to be changed into that dear little bird? My name is Florentine, and my mother is a queen, and something more than a queen, for she knows magic and spells, and because I would not do as she wished, she turned me into a dove by day, but at night her spells lose their power and I become a man again. Today I crossed the sea and saw you for the first time, and I was glad to be a bird that I could come near you. Unless you love me, I shall never be happy more. But if I love you, says she, will you not fly away and leave me one of these fine days? Never, never, said the prince, be my wife, and I'll be yours for ever. By day a bird, by night a prince. I will always be by your side as a husband, dear. So they were married in secret, and lived happily in the castle, and no one knew that every night Kumaidove became Prince Florentine. And every year a little son came to them, as bonny as bonny could be. But as each son was born, Prince Florentine carried the little thing away on his back, over the sea, to where the queen, his mother, lived, and left the little one with her. Seven years passed thus, and then a great trouble came to them, for the Earl Mar wished to marry his daughter to a noble of high degree who came wooing her. Her father pressed her sore, but she said, Father, dear, I do not wish to marry. I can be quite happy with Kumaidove here. Then her father got into a mighty rage, and saw a great big oath, and said, "'Tomorrow, so sure as I live and eat, I'll twist that birdie's neck.' And out he stamped from her room. "'Oh, oh!' said Kumaidove. "'It's time that I was away.' And so he jumped upon the window-sill, and in a moment was flying away. And he flew and he flew, till he was over the deep, deep sea. And yet on he flew till he came to his mother's castle." Now the queen, his mother, was taking her walk abroad, when she saw the pretty dove flying overhead and alighting on the castle walls. "'Here, dancers, come and dance your jigs,' she called, "'and pipers, pipe you well, for here's my own Florentine. Come back to me to stay, for he's brought no bonny boy with him this time.' "'No, mother,' said Florentine, "'no dancers for me and no minstrels, for my dear wife, the mother of my seven boys, is to be wed to-morrow.' and sad's the day for me. "'What can I do, my son?' said the queen. "'Tell me, and it shall be done if my magic has the power to do it.' "'Well then, mother dear, turn the twenty-four dancers and pipers into twenty-four grey herons, and let my seven sons become seven white swans, and let me be a gozork and their leader.' "'Alas, alas, my son,' she said. "'That may not be. My magic reaches not so far.' "'but perhaps my teacher, the spaywife of Austri, may know better.' "'And away she hurries to the cave of Austri, "'and after a while comes out as white as white can be, "'and muttering over some burning herbs she brought out of the cave. "'Suddenly Kumaidove changed into a goshawk, "'and around him flew twenty-four grey herons, "'and above them flew seven cygnets. "'Without a word or a good-bye, "'off they flew over the deep blue sea, "'which was tossing and moaning.' They flew and they flew, till they swooped down on Earl Mar's castle, just as the wedding party were setting off for the church. First came the men-at-arms, and then the bridegroom's friends, 
and then Earl Mar's men, and then the bridegroom, and lastly, pale and beautiful, Earl Mar's daughter herself. They moved down slowly to stately music, till they came past the trees on which the birds were settling. A word from Prince Florentine, the goshawk, and they all rose into the air, herons beneath, signets above, and goshawk circling above all. The Wedeneers wondered at the sight when, swoop, the herons were down among them, scattering the men-at-arms. The swanlets took charge of the bride, while the goshawk dashed down and tied the bridegroom to a tree. Then the herons gathered themselves together into one feather-bed, and the signets placed their mother upon them and suddenly they all rose in the air, bearing the bride away with them in safety towards Prince Florentine's home. Surely a wedding party was never so disturbed in this world. What could the weddineers do? They saw their pretty bride carried away and away, till she and the herons and the swans and the goshawk disappeared, and that very day Prince Florentine brought Earl Mar's daughter to the castle of the queen, his mother, who took the spell off him, and they lived happy ever afterwards. End of chapter 29, Earl Mar's Daughter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 30. Mr. Miyaka Tommy Grimes was sometimes a good boy, and sometimes a bad boy, and when he was a bad boy, he was a very bad boy. Now his mother used to say to him, Tommy, Tommy, be a good boy, and don't go out of the street, or else Mr. Miyaka will take you. But still, when he was a bad boy, he would go out of the street, and one day, sure enough, he had scarcely got round the corner when Mr. Miyaka did catch him and popped him into a bag upside down and took him off to his house. When Mr. Miyaka got Tommy inside, he pulled him out of the bag and set him down and felt his arms and legs. "'You're rather tough,' says he. "'But you're all I've got for supper, and you'll not taste bad boiled. But body o' me, I forgot the herbs, and it's bitter you'll taste without herbs. Sally!' "'Here I say, Sally!' and he called Mrs. Miyaka. So Mrs. Miyaka came out of another room and said, "'What do you want, my dear?' "'Oh, here's a little boy for supper,' said Mr. Miyaka, "'and I forgot the herbs. Mind him, will ye, while I go for them?' "'All right, my love,' says Mrs. Miyaka, and off he goes. Then Tommy Grimes said to Mrs. Miyaka, does Mr. Miyaka always have little boys for supper? Mostly, my dear, said Mrs. Miyaka, if little boys are bad enough and get in his way. And don't you have anything else but boy meat? No pudding? asked Tommy. I loves pudding, says Mrs. Miyaka, but it's not often the likes of me gets pudding. Why, my mother is making a pudding this very day, said Tommy Grimes. "'and I'm sure she'd give you some if I ask her. "'Shall I run and get some?' "'Now that's a thoughtful boy,' said Mrs. Miyaka. "'Only don't be long and be sure to be back for supper.' "'So off Tommy pelters, and right glad he was to get off so cheap. "'And for many a long day 
He was as good as good could be, and never went round the corner of the street. But he couldn't always be good, and one day he went round the corner, and as luck would have it, he hadn't scarcely got round it when Mr. Miaka grabbed him up, popped him in his bag, and took him home. When he got him there, Mr. Miaka dropped him out, and when he saw him he said, "'Ah, you're the youngster what served me and my missus that shabby trick, leaving us without any supper. Well, you shan't do it again. I'll watch over you myself. Here, get under the sofa, and I'll set on it and watch the pot boil for you.' So poor Tommy Grimes had to creep under the sofa, and Mr. Miaka sat on it and waited for the pot to boil. And they waited and they waited. But still the pot didn't boil, till at last Mr. Miaka got tired of waiting, and he said, "'Here, you under there. I'm not going to wait any longer. Put out your leg, and I'll stop your giving us the slip.' So Tommy put out a leg, and Mr. Miaka got a chopper, and chopped it off, and pops it in the pot. Suddenly he calls out, "'Sally, my dear, Sally!' And nobody answered. So he went into the next room, to look out for Mrs. Miaka, and while he was there, Tommy crept out from under the sofa and ran out of the door, for it was a leg of the sofa that he had put out. So Tommy Grimes ran home, and he never went round the corner again till he was old enough to go alone. End of chapter 30 Mr. Miaka This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 31. Whittington and His Cat. In the reign of the famous King Edward III, there was a little boy called Dick Whittington, whose father and mother died when he was very young. As poor Dick was not old enough to work, he was very badly off. He got but little for his dinner, and sometimes nothing at all for his breakfast, for the people who lived in the village were very poor indeed, and could not spare him much more than the parings of potatoes, and now and then a hard crust of bread. Now Dick had heard a great many very strange things about the great city called London, for the country people at that time thought that folks in London were all fine gentlemen and ladies, and that there was singing and music there all day long, and that the streets were all paved with gold. One day a large wagon and eight horses, all with bells at their heads, drove through the village while Dick was standing by the signpost. He thought that this wagon must be going to the fine town of London, so he took courage and asked the wagoner to let him walk with him by the side of the wagon. As soon as the wagoner heard that poor Dick had no father or mother, and saw by his ragged clothes that he could not be worse off than he was, he told him he might go if he would, so off they set together. So Dick got safe to London, and was in such a hurry to see the fine streets paved all over with gold, that he did not even stay to thank the kind wagoner, but ran off as fast as his legs would carry him, through many of the streets, thinking every moment to come to those that were paved with gold for Dick had seen a guinea three times in his own little village, and remembered what a deal of money it brought in change. So he thought he had nothing to do but to take up some little bits of the pavement, and should then have as much money as he could wish for. Poor Dick ran till he was tired, 
and had quite forgot his friend the wagoner. But at last, finding it grow dark, and that every way he turned he saw nothing but dirt instead of gold, he sat down in a dark corner and cried himself to sleep. Little Dick was all night in the streets, and next morning, being very hungry, he got up and walked about, and asked everybody he met to give him a halfpenny to keep him from starving. But nobody stayed to answer him, and only two or three gave him a halfpenny, so that the poor boy was soon quite weak and faint for the want of victuals. In this distress he asked charity of several people, and one of them said crossly, "'Go to work for an idle rogue.' "'That I will,' says Dick. "'I will to go work for you if you will let me.' But the man only cursed at him and went on. At last a good-natured-looking gentleman saw how hungry he looked. "'Why don't you go to work, my lad?' said he to Dick. "'That I would, but I do not know how to get any,' answered Dick. "'If you are willing, come along with me,' said the gentleman, and took him to a hay-field, where Dick worked briskly and lived merrily till the hay was made. After this he found himself as badly off as before, and being almost starved again, he laid himself down at the door of Mr. Fitzwarren, a rich merchant. Here he was soon seen by the cookmaid, who was an ill-tempered creature, and happened just then to be very busy dressing dinner for her master and mistress. So she called out to poor Dick, "'What business have you there, you lazy rogue? There is nothing else but beggars. If you do not take yourself away, we will see how you will like a sousing of some dishwater. I have some here hot enough to make you jump.' Just at that time, Mr. Fitzwarren himself came home to dinner, and when he saw a dirty, ragged boy lying at the door, he said to him, "'Why do you lie there, my boy? You seem old enough to work. I am afraid you are inclined to be lazy.' "'No, indeed, sir,' said Dick to him. "'That is not the case, for I would work with all my heart, but I do not know anybody, and I believe I am very sick for the want of food.' "'Poor fellow!' "'Get up. Let me see what ails you.' Dick now tried to rise, but was obliged to lie down again, being too weak to stand, for he had not eaten any food for three days, and was no longer able to run about and beg a halfpenny of people in the street. So the kind merchant ordered him to be taken into the house, and have a good dinner given him, and be kept to do what work he was able to do for the cook.' Little Dick would have lived very happy in this good family if it had not been for the ill-natured cook. She used to say, "'You are under me, so look sharp. Clean the spit and the dripping pan. Make the fires, wind up the jack, and do all the scullery work nimbly, or—' And she would shake the ladle at him. Besides, she was so fond of basting that when she had no meat to baste, she would baste poor Dick's head and shoulders with a broom, or anything else that happened to fall in her way.' At last her ill-usage of him was told to Alice, Mr. Fitzwarren's daughter, who told the cook she should be turned away if she did not treat him kinder. The behaviour of the cook was now a little better, but besides this Dick had another hardship to get over. His bed stood in a garret where there were so many holes in the floor and the walls that every night he was tormented with rats and mice. A gentleman, having given Dick a penny for cleaning his shoes, he thought he would buy a cat with it. The next day he saw a girl with a cat and asked her, 
"'Will you let me have that cat for a penny?' "'The girl said, "'Yes, that I will, master, though she is an excellent mouser.' "'Dick hid his cat in the garret, "'and always took care to carry a part of his dinner to her, "'and in a short time he had no more trouble with the rats and mice, "'but slept quite sound every night. "'Soon after this his master had a ship ready to sail.' and as it was the custom that all his servants should have some chance for good fortune as well as himself, he called them all into the parlour and asked them what they would send out. They all had something that they were willing to venture except poor Dick, who had neither money nor goods, and therefore could send nothing. For this reason he did not come into the parlour with the rest, but Miss Alice guessed what was the matter, and ordered him to be called in. She then said, I will lay down some money for him from my own purse. But her father told her, This will not do, for it must be something of his own. When poor Dick heard this, he said, I have nothing but a cat which I bought for a penny some time since of a little girl. Fetch your cat then, my lad, said Mr. Fitzwarren, and let her go. Dick went upstairs and brought down poor Puss with tears in his eyes and gave her to the captain. For, he said, I shall now be kept awake all night by the rats and mice. All the company laughed at Dick's odd venture, and Miss Alice, who felt pity for him, gave him some money to buy another cat. This and many other marks of kindness shown him by Miss Alice made the ill-tempered cook jealous of poor Dick, and she began to use him more cruelly than ever, and always made game of him for sending his cat to sea. She asked him, do you think your cat will sell for as much money as would buy a stick to beat you? At last poor Dick could not bear this usage any longer, and he thought he would run away from his place. So he packed up his few things and started very early in the morning, on All Hallows' Day, the first of November. He walked as far as Holloway, and there sat down on a stone, which to this day is called Whittington Stone, and began to think to himself which road he should take. While he was thinking what he should do, the bells of Bow Church, which at that time were only six, began to ring, and their sound seemed to say to him, Turn again, Whittington, thrice Lord Mayor of London. Lord Mayor of London, said he to himself. Why, to be sure, I would put up with almost anything now to be Lord Mayor of London, and ride in a fine coach when I grow to be a man. Well... I will go back and think nothing of the cuffing and scolding of the old cook if I am to be Lord Mayor of London at last. Dick went back and was lucky enough to get into the house and set about his work before the old cook came downstairs. We must now follow Miss Puss to the coast of Africa. The ship with the cat on board was a long time at sea and was at last driven by the winds on a part of the coast of Barbary where the only people were the Moors unknown to the English. The people came in great numbers to see the sailors, because they were of different colour to themselves, and treated them civilly, and, when they became better acquainted, were very eager to buy the fine things that the ship was loaded with. When the captain saw this, he sent patterns of the best things he had to the king of the country, who was so much pleased with them, that he sent for the captain to the palace. Here they were placed, as it is the custom of the country, on rich carpets flowered with gold and silver. The king and queen were seated at the upper end of the room, and a number of dishes were brought in for dinner. 
they had not sat long when a vast number of rats and mice rushed in and devoured all the meat in an instant. The captain wondered at this and asked if these vermin were not unpleasant. Oh, yes, said they, very offensive, and the king would give half his treasure to be freed of them, for they not only destroy his dinner, as you see, but they assault him in his chamber and even in bed, so that he is obliged to be watched while he is sleeping for fear of them. The captain jumped for joy. He remembered poor Whittington and his cat, and told the king he had a creature on board the ship that would dispatch all these vermin immediately. The king jumped so high at the joy which the news gave him that his turban dropped off his head. "'Bring this creature to me,' says he. "'Vermin are dreadful in a court, and if she will perform what you say, I will load your ship with gold and jewels in exchange for her.' The captain, who knew his business, took this opportunity to set forth the merits of Miss Puss. He told His Majesty, "'It is not very convenient to part with hers when she is gone. The rats and mice may destroy the goods in the ship. But to oblige your Majesty, I will fetch her.' "'Run, run!' said the Queen. "'I am impatient to see the dear creature.' Away went the captain to the ship, while another dinner was got ready. He put Puss under his arm, and arrived at the place just in time to see the table full of rats. When the cat saw them, she did not wait for bidding, but jumped out of the captain's arms, and in a few minutes laid almost all the rats and mice dead at her feet. The rest of them in their fright scampered away to their holes. The king was quite charmed to get rid so easily of such plagues, and the queen desired that the creature who had done them so great a kindness, be brought to her that she might look at her. Upon which the captain called, Pussy, 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 and she came to him. He then presented her to the queen, who started back and was afraid to touch a creature who had made such a havoc among the rats and mice. However, when the captain stroked the cat and called, Pussy, pussy, the queen also touched her and cried, Puddy, puddy, for she had not learned English. He then put her down on the queen's lap, where she purred and played with her majesty's hand, and then purred herself to sleep. The king, having seen the exploits of Mrs. Puss, and being informed that her kittens would stock the whole country and keep it free from rats, bargained with the captain for the whole ship's cargo, and then gave him ten times as much for the cat as all the rest amounted to. The captain then took leave of the royal party, and set sail with a fair wind for England, and after a happy voyage arrived safe in London. One morning early, Mr. Fitzwarren had just come to his counting-house and seated himself at the desk to count over the cash and settle the business for the day, when somebody came tap-tap at the door. "'Who's there?' said Mr. Fitzwarren. "'A friend,' answered the other. "'I come to bring you good news of your ship Unicorn.' The merchant bustling up in such a hurry that he forgot his gout, opened the door, and who should he see waiting but the captain and factor, with a cabinet of jewels and a bill of lading. When he looked at this, the merchant lifted up his eyes and thanked heaven for sending him such a prosperous voyage. They then told the story of the cat, and showed the rich present that the king and queen had sent for her to poor Dick. As soon as the merchant heard this, he called out to his servants, Go send him in, and tell him of his fame. Pray, call him Mr. Whittington by name. 
Mr. Fitzwarren now showed himself to be a good man, for when some of his servants said so great a treasure was too much for him, he answered, "'God forbid I should deprive him of the value of a single penny. It is his own, and he shall have it to a farthing.' He then sent for Dick, who at that time was scouring pots for the cook, and was quite dirty. He would have excused himself from coming into the counting-house, saying, "'The room is swept, and my shoes are dirty and full of hobnails.' but the merchant ordered him to come in. Mr. Fitzwarren ordered a chair to be set for him, and so he began to think they were making game of him, at the same time said to them, "'Do not play tricks with a poor simple boy, but let me go down again, if you please, to my work.' "'Indeed, Mr. Whittington,' said the merchant, "'we are all quite in earnest with you, and I most heartily rejoice in the news that these gentlemen have brought you.' for the captain has sold your cat to the king of Barbary, and brought you in return for her more riches than I possess in the whole world, and I wish you may long enjoy them. Mr. Fitzwarren then told the men to open the great treasure they had brought with them, and said, Mr. Whittington has nothing to do but to put it in some place of safety. Poor Dick hardly knew how to behave himself for joy. He begged his master to take what part of it he pleased, since he owed it all to his kindness. "'No, no,' answered Mr. Fitzwarren. "'This is all your own, and I have no doubt but you will use it well.' Dick next asked his mistress, and then Miss Alice, to accept a part of his good fortune, but they would not, and at the same time told him they felt great joy at his good success. But this poor fellow was too kind-hearted to keep it all to himself. So he made a present to the captain, the mate, and the rest of Mr. Fitzwarren's servants, and even to the ill-natured old cook. After this, Mr. Fitzwarren advised him to send for a proper tailor and get himself dressed like a gentleman, and told him he was welcome to live in his house till he could provide himself with a better. When Whittington's face was washed, his hair curled, his hat cocked, and he was dressed in a nice suit of clothes, he was as handsome and genteel as any young man who visited at Mr. Fitzwarren's, so that Miss Alice, who had once been so kind to him, and thought of him with pity, now looked upon him as fit to be her sweetheart, and the more so, no doubt, because Whittington was now always thinking what he could do to oblige her, and making her the prettiest presents that could be. Mr. Fitzwarren soon saw their love for each other, and proposed to join them in marriage, and to this they both readily agreed. A day for the wedding was soon fixed, and they were attended to church by the Lord Mayor, the court of aldermen, the sheriffs, and a great number of the richest merchants in London, whom they afterwards treated with a very rich feast. History tells us that Mr. Whittington and his lady lived in great splendour and were very happy. They had several children. He was sheriff of London, thrice Lord Mayor, and received the honour of knighthood by Henry V. He entertained this king and his queen at dinner after his conquest of France so grandly that the king said, Never had prince such a subject. When Sir Richard heard this, he said, Never had subject such a prince. The figure of Sir Richard Whittington with his cat in his arms, carved in stone, was to be seen till the year 1780 over the archway of the old prison of Newgate, which he built for criminals. End of chapter 31 Whittington and his cat
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales, collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 32 The Strange Visitor. A woman was sitting at her reel one night, and still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of broad, broad soles, and sat down at the fireside, and still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of small, small legs, and sat down on the broad, broad soles, and still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of thick, thick knees, and sat down on the small, small legs, and still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of thin, thin thighs, and sat down on the thick, thick knees, and still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of huge, huge hips, and sat down on the thin, thin thighs. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a wee, wee waist, and sat down on the huge, huge hips. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of broad, broad shoulders, and sat down on the wee, wee waist. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of small, small arms, and sat down on the broad, broad shoulders. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of huge, huge hands, and sat down on the small, small arms. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a small, small neck, and sat down on the broad, broad shoulders. And still she sat, and still she reeled, and still she wished for company. In came a huge, huge head, and sat down on the small, small neck. "'How did you get such broad, broad feet?' quoth the woman. "'Much tramping, much tramping,' gruffly. "'How did you get such small, small legs?' "'I late and wee mole whiningly. "'How did you get such thick, thick knees?' "'Much praying, much praying,' piously. "'How did you get such thin, thin thighs?' "'I late and wee mole whiningly. "'How did you get such big, big hips?' "'Much sitting, much sitting.' Gruffly. How did you get such a wee wee waist? I late and wee mole. How did you get such broad, broad shoulders? With carrying broom, with carrying broom. Gruffly. How did you get such small, small arms? I late and wee mole. Whiningly. 
"'How did you get such huge, huge hands?' "'Threshing with an iron flail, threshing with an iron flail,' gruffly. "'How did you get such a small, small neck?' "'Aye, late and weemo,' pitifully. "'How did you get such a huge, huge head?' "'Much knowledge, much knowledge,' keenly. "'What do you come for?' "'For you!' at the top of the voice, with a wave of the arm and a stamp of the feet. End of chapter 32 The Strange Visitor